Lord God, we thank You so much for loving us. We thank You as we just read from the Apostle Paul, we see the Gospel truth. That You are a holy, just, and loving God. And that in Jesus Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. That all those who put their faith in Him don't have condemnation and wrath waiting, but life, an eternal life. We thank You that Your Word says that Your mercies are new each morning. God, your steadfast love endures forever. So we thank you that even as you look at us, you don't see us as sinners. You don't see us as those who deserve your wrath, but you see us who believe in Jesus covered by his robes of righteousness, by his blood, as he purchased our soul on that cross. As we sang about it, as we read about it, and Lord, as we'll preach about that this morning, I pray we never forget that. Lord, I pray you bless our time together. pray that you take distractions that are out of my mind, out of all of our minds, Lord, and we could focus on the truth of your word and the love that we see in it. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to John chapter 7, verse 53. John 7, verse 53. I'll give you a few moments to turn there. Again, we've been going through John's Gospel verse by verse, line by line, for not a year yet, and we took some time off, but but we're making making our way through it. But if you notice, I don't know if you have, raise your hand if there's something weird about these verses, or you see something in your Bible about these verses. Okay, there's a few hands. If you have the King James Version, you're probably like, there's nothing there. It's just regular, there's, there's nothing different. But I promise you, in my Bible, ESV, this is what I read at the very, very top of these, of these verses. It says, The earliest manuscripts do not include 7.53 to John chapter 8.11. If you look in the Pew Bible in front of you to see that I'm not making this up, and you turn there, there's a little asterisk that brings you down to a footnote that says the same thing. So, again... The earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. What do we do with this? What do I do with this? I can either, well, there's two options. I can either ignore it, or we could talk and and, and look at it together. And let me say this. If any sermon starts off with, well, let's ignore this, and maybe we'll come back to it later. I hope there's a red flag that happens in your brain or in your heart. I hope the Holy Spirit shouts at you. There's something wrong with that statement. So our only remaining option is to talk about it. It's, it's to look at it together. And what I want to do is I want to walk you through my investigation, my studying, my, my, my praying, my conclusion, right? all the hours I spent just researching, just these few words. It does not found in the earliest manuscripts. And what I want to do is focus more as a teaching moment. So again, please don't zone out. It's not going to be much preaching, but rather teaching, because we've got to talk about this together. And then towards the end... I promise they'll be preaching and we'll, t- we'll talk and we'll look at these verses together. If you have your notes, if you want to follow along, the first thing we're going to look at is the textual criticism. So our New Testament was originally written down and translated from Greek. That's why many preachers, when they preach, will say, well, the Greek says this and that word means this. And if you look in this area, it's the same Greek word for that. Like, it's almost like we're obsessed with Greek because that's the original language the original authors wrote in the New Testament. The first printed Greek New Testament 
came in the year 1516. This made the New Testament accessible to everybody, that they can read it for themselves. You think of William Tyndale and his story. So for the first 1,500 years, Scripture was handed down handwritten copies. And a little fact, we don't have the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We don't have the actual papyrus paper that John would have wrote his words by his own hand in his own way. And I read something that said maybe that's a good thing. Because if, de- if we did, there could be a chance we'd idolize them. It could be a chance to be displayed in a vast museum and people would go and bow down to these as idols. And before you panic at that statement, right? some of you might have been like, well, what is we don't have the originals. Can we trust it? I don't know. If it's not the originals, it's copies. What do we do with that? Here's what we do have. We have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, including fragments and whole pieces of the New Testament. Some of the earliest manuscript copies were found within 50 to 100 years when the New Testament books were written. Here's a little example. John's Gospel, what we're reading and going through, is written about 90 AD. It's believed to be at the end of his life. And there's a fragment called Papyri P90, which contains portions of the Gospel of John, John chapter 18 and 19, in Greek, and it dates back to the 2nd century. That's 101 A.D. to 200 A.D. And it's believed that's the first half of that century. No historical document, let me say it again, no historical document even comes close to the New Testament manuscript copies we have in both the amount of them and the time between the original and the copy. Here's a little example. There are ten existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. He is believed to compose his original in the year 58 to 50 B.C. That's B.C. And all of the ten existing manuscripts date back to the 10th century or later. That's over a thousand years later. You have Pliny the Elder who wrote his encyclopedia Natural History in the 1st century, and the earliest manuscript evidence we have of that is from the 5th century, a gap of about 400 years. And here's the conclusion from Bible scholars. And I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying this because there, we could talk about this for hours. Bible scholars have a high degree of certainty that we, when we have our Bibles in our hand in the pews, that what we have is an accurate translation of what the original manuscript said by the original authors. Even in the areas of disagreement, like what's found right here, it's not found in the earliest manuscript, there's also a place in Mark's Gospel as well, and it has a footnote that says it. Even in these areas where there's disagreement, it has no effect on the doctrine of our faith, of the doctrine of Christian faith. This means that as we read these verses this morning, They are consistent, they are true with the teachings and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And what what I want to do is, is how do we come to this conclusion? Why is this footnote here? Well, there's two sort of evidences. If you have your notes, we'll start at letter B because I swapped them, but the first one we have is the internal evidence. And what does that mean is how does this passage that we're going to read fit in the context with the verses around it? How does it fit in with John's Gospel? It seemingly breaks the flow of John's Gospel. It'd be better read if you read John's Gospel, if you go right from the story where we ended with Nicodemus defending Jesus, right into verse 12 where Jesus says to be the light of the world. 
It's the same day, it's the same, it's the same a little bit different in time. It's believed to be later at night. He's still in the Feast of Booths, he's, full, he's still in the temple teaching. There's also different vocabulary that's used in these verses that we're going to read this morning that's found nowhere else in John's Gospel. He uses the word scribes. And John doesn't use scribes anywhere else except here. Other Gospel writers use the word scribes. He says chief priests and Pharisees. There's other 13 other words that are used in these verses that are found nowhere else in John's Gospel. So here's the conclusion that most scholars have, have believed that it seems out of place according to the narrative, according if, it, if John wrote it. The language used is inconsistent with John being the original author. Right, so that's just the internal evidence. Now we get the external. What do the manuscripts, what do the Greek manuscripts tell us? The earliest manuscripts omit it. It says it right there. They're not included in the earliest manuscripts we have. All the manuscripts before the 5th century, 500 AD, don't have these verses in them. None of the early church fathers comment on this passage. It's not until the 10th century, about a thousand years later, where it's recognized. And when it does show up in the manuscripts, the earlier ones between five, the 5th and the 10th century, it's found in several different places. Some scribes and other people and translators have put it earlier in John's Gospel, earlier in John chapter 7. Some have believed it could be in, at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 22 verse 38 which is actually after Jesus enters Jerusalem during the Passover week, after his triumphant entry, at the end of his ministry. And it says, and that verse ends with, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives to pray. So what are my thoughts? Right? That, that's the evidence, that's everything I was studying and researching. And here's the conclusion that I come to. So please don't hear me say this is, this is what the Bible said. This is just what I think, me. I believe that it was a historical and a real story that took place in Jesus' ministry. What we read today actually happened. It's truthful. It belongs in the Bible. It's an inspired Word of God. However, I believe it doesn't necessarily fit the best when you read chronologically, when you read if the language John used. I don't think it fits the best in John's Gospel. I really do like the Luke chapter 22. because It says he went up to the Mount of Olives to pray, and then this starts with, he came back to the temple from the Mount of Olives. Just my opinion, but the main thing I need you to hear is this. It does not contradict the rest of Scripture. It's consistent with Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels. And Nick, I'm actually going to give a little plug and a little shout out to Nick. The class he's doing on Sunday mornings is, Why Should I Trust the Bible? And Should's Crossed Out, so it's why, why I Trust the Bible. There's actually a whole section of this towards the end of this book, and I'm sure Nick will cover it eventually when he gets there. Okay, a couple weeks. So maybe if you want to give me an email, and I'll send it out to the church in case anybody's interesting. Because I'm just, I'm, not that I'm breezing through, but I don't want to spend an hour you know, talking about the teaching, going through that. But Nick, Nick does. He, he does do that. <laughs> if you're interested, you could tell me, and I'll show you this book, and you could get it for yourself. But at conclusion, what we're going to read is an inspired word of God. My conclusion, and what I conclude, is that of the scholars that I believe it belongs in the Bible. It's here for a reason. God wanted it in here. However, it does interrupt the flow of John. But since it's here in our Bibles, we're going to read it together. So, that was a little teaching. Hopefully you didn't zone out. right? Hopefully you're still with me. But really what I want you to say, I don't want you to, to cast doubt. right? When you read those words, well, I don't, how can we trust the, the rest of the Bible? How do we do that? We can. 
We know it's the Word of God. And we can see through evidence that this is, is proven by evidence, that this is a story consistent with Jesus' character. And I was telling Mark this morning as we were praying, I said, the fact that we believe a holy, perfect God, we should have that same faith that He can preserve His holy, perfect Word. It is a faith issue. So with that, let's jump into the text. Now starts the sermon. That was the pre-sermon. Okay, but now we'll jump in. And what I want to say before we even read, one of the worst feelings in the world, hopefully you'll agree, and maybe you don't have to, but one of the worst feelings in the world is getting caught red-handed. Getting caught red-handed. Has that ever happened to you? With a baby, I see Naya doing things sometimes she shouldn't be doing. I say, hey, what are you doing? And she'll go, and she'll run away. Most of the time. Sometimes she'll go, no, no, no. And I'm like, yes, no, 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 don't do it. I want to tell you two quick stories. The first, I was in college. And let me just say this, I was not a good student. I didn't like school. I didn't. So in college, I would look at the syllabuses and I would say, okay, how many absences can I get away with? That, that's what I would read. Instead of it saying, these are what you're permitted, I would say, okay, how many can I get away with before I actually get in trouble? And there was one class I took that I didn't have to take. It wasn't a part of my major. I was sort of stuck in that class for financial reasons. I had to be a full-time student, so I was kind of just stuck there. couldn't drop it. So I emailed my professor, and I was like, hey, listen, I'm really sorry. I can't come to class today. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling good. I'm sick. And she replied back, that's okay. hope you feel better. And I was like, yes, I have the whole day free. I'm going to hang out with my friends. A little later in the day, I went to the grocery store down the road and went shopping. And in my hand, I had Red Bull, I had cookies, I had candy, you know, college food. And in the corner of my eye, I see my professor, the one I emailed saying, I'm sick, I'm not going to come to class today, sorry. And I hide, I literally, I, I, I run away and I'm like spying like behind the counters, like, okay, is she gone? I was like, she's gone. I, I made it, the coast is clear. So I'm strolling down the aisle, I'm going to check out, I'm going down the aisle, and you know when you get to the end of the aisle, it's a little bit of a blind, you know, a blind turn here. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm like running because I need to get out of here. And this cart almost hits me. And I'm like, oh, I look. And it's my professor. She looks at me and she says, feeling better, are we, David? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, it's just, yeah, feeling a little better. And I was like, caught, I was caught red-handed. I was caught in my lie. Or, have you ever rolled through a stop sign and then behind you are sirens? Guilty. I was caught. I was, the, he saw me go through it. I was caught. Or how about you speed through a yellow light? Because you can make it. And then the car in front of you decides to go a little slower through the intersection. Then you get stuck when it turns red. And then in your rearview mirror, you see the flash. Ticket. And then they actually send you the proof, right? They show you the video. Here's the evidence that you blew through that red light. And you're like, yep, they caught me. Guilty. Have you ever stolen something and gotten caught red-handed? A few summers ago, during VBS, I ran to Quick Check to get a Red Bull. I know a lot of my stories involve Red Bulls. Sorry. As I was in line about to pay, an older lady came storming out of the back room. And she ran over to a younger woman who was about my age as she was leaving the store. And it turns out that that older lady was the store manager and she was watching the cameras in the back room. And she screamed. And when I say scream, she screamed at this young, younger girl, show me your backpack right now. I know what you did. Open it up and give it back. The girl immediately, she broke down. Like she, didn't, she, had, she, she knew she was caught. She broke down crying and kept repeating over and over, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She's caught red-handed st stealing. 
in her backpack was actually this, a little Starbucks mocha frap. So every time I see this, I always think of that story, and I do like these. So now, again, it reminds me of the story of when I saw somebody being caught red-handed stealing. She got kicked out of the store, and as she was leaving, the manager had some words for her. But also, she ended with this, if I ever see you step foot in my store again, I will call the cops, I will press charges, and you will be thrown in jail. And there I am, right, I'm back, about to pay for my drink. And as I pay the, the register, the cashier says, do you want your receipt? And I'm like, yeah, I want my receipt. I don't, I don't want to be yelled at like that. I want to, here's the proof I purchased. I didn't steal it. Right? That was awkward to witness. Like, I, to me, I felt the shame. I felt the embarrassment. I was there like this. Like, like front row to a movie. I was like, what is going on? I don't see that every day. I can't imagine how that girl felt. Now she was rightfully guilty. She was called out publicly in front of the whole store, both employees and customers, for being a thief. And if anything, the manager actually could have called the cops, could have pressed charges, but she chose not to. Now if you have your Bibles, hopefully you're there. John chapter 7, verse 53 is where we'll start. And we're going to see a story of a woman who's caught red-handed. She's caught red-handed in her sin. They went, sorry, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So just a little bit of, of a recap of what's going on here. Jesus is sitting in the temple. As a rabbi would do, they would sit and they would teach the, uh, they would teach the listeners. They'd teach their disciples, the listeners. He's teaching a crowd in the temple. It's calm. It's quiet. It's, respect, it's respectable. Right? Everything's going on. There's listening. There's learning. Suddenly, the scribes and the Pharisees burst forth in the scene with this woman who's been caught red-handed in adultery and sin. She's placed in the midst of everyone. So now where the attention was on Jesus and His teaching and what He was saying, the attention is now on this woman and her sin and what she's done. Those who brought her in, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they tell Jesus that according to the law, Moses commanded that she be stoned for the sin. She'd be buried up to her waist, tied, hands tied behind her back, and rocks thrown at her until she died. Now again, that, that is true. There's truth to that. However, they fail to mention that there's also another guilty party that they failed to bring into the temple with the woman. The man is also supposed to have the same sentence. Because why? It takes two for the sin. 
It takes two. So they sort of held up half the law, but not really because they forget the man, which, which, shall, which, which told, or tells us or shows us they really didn't care about justice being satisfied. They rather wanted to trap Jesus in a seemingly impossible situation to try to get some sort of charge against him. It's amazing that Jesus' enemies had to constantly try to trick him and trap him. They couldn't hold up anything against him. And we know in the Bible it's because he's perfect. He was sinless. He had no sin. And here was the trap. Ready? You might say, well, what does it make sense? Why is it, so, why is it such a big deal? If Jesus tells them to stone the woman, then Jesus is liable to Roman punishment because he carried out a capital punishment, something only the Romans could do. Also, his reputation of showing compassion, grace, and love, being a friend of sinners, that would be destroyed. Not so much that, but the first one, they're trying to trap him so that the Romans can come and arrest him. He's trying, hey, look, Jesus is inciting the capital punishment. Guards, come here, arrest him. That was the one side. If he answered that way, yes, you're right, stone her. She deserves it. On the other side, if Jesus says not to stone her, then he would be guilty publicly with everybody there of opposing the Mosaic law. So what do we see him do? He leans down, because he's already sitting, he leans down, he starts writing in the sand. Let me say this, no one knows what he wrote. Can we, can we just admit that? To, and just say, No one knows what he wrote. There are some really cool speculations. Some think that maybe he's writing the next verse that he's about to say. Some think that maybe he's writing the sins of those accusers that brought this woman here. Some think he's quoting from Jeremiah 13 that says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame, for those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Some think maybe Exodus 23.1 where it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man and be a malicious witness. And that's a calling out to the, those who, who brought this woman before him. He's writing. And it says they continue to ask him. And the language there is they're pressing him. They're waiting. Come on, Jesus. Come on. What do you say? What do you say? What, 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 what's your response? Finally, Jesus stands up and he says something. Verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to, stow, to throw a stone at her. And in this perfect response, Jesus is now putting the responsibility of, of justice back on the Pharisees and the scribes, back on the witnesses. He doesn't deny her guilt. He doesn't accept it or say, no, she didn't do anything wrong. But rather, he knows the law. He knows the Scripture. In Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, according to the law, the witnesses, those who witnessed a, 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 a sin that was, uh, again, with, and it was deemed to have capital punishment, if you were a witness, you were the first to throw a stone and carry out that punishment. So Jesus is also now quoting the law correctly back to those witnesses, saying if she's worthy of this punishment and you're the witness, it's on you, according to the law, to throw the stone, to throw the first stone. And after Jesus said this, it says they left from oldest to youngest. Some have speculated that the older you get, the less prideful you are. The older you get, the, the longer you've lived and the more sin you know that you have. And the youngest tend to be the most arrogant or the most people that say, I'm, I'm, I'm perfect, I have done nothing wrong. We don't know for sure, but it says oldest to youngest, they left. It's interesting, those who came to put Jesus to shame, they left ashamed. Those who came to condemn, left condemned. Jesus is now alone with the woman, 
And he finally addresses her for the first time that she's dragged before everybody and the crowd. It's the first time she's addressed. And he says to her in verse 10, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies back, No one, Lord. And the word Lord there is not Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but rather it's, it's Lord as a respectful term for, for a man. No one, Lord. Then the story ends with Jesus saying this, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you have your notes, what we see in this story is the gospel truth displayed. I want you to keep that in mind. The gospel being displayed in the story. Letter A, under the law, we all stand condemned. That's what Nick was reading from in Romans. That's what he was saying when he was quoting back from Exodus. Make no mistake, this woman who was caught in adultery was guilty. There wasn't a doubt. It wasn't a scandal. It wasn't a lie. It wasn't a gray area of the law. It was clear from the law that she deserved this punishment. She deserved it. They didn't need a rabbi's opinion. They didn't need a teacher's opinion. The, the law keepers, the self-appointed law keepers and law experts would have known what to do. It was an open and shut case. After Jesus' response, we see that the crowd and everyone there, by what he said, as they left, they're guilty of breaking the law as well. No one was able to pick up and throw a stone at the woman. Why? Because under the law, everyone is condemned. Everyone has sin. And it echoes what Jesus said in John chapter 7, what we looked at two weeks ago, where he talks to the crowd in the temple and says, yet none of you keep the law. So all of us here this morning, as Nick said, this, this phrase, bad news. Here's the bad news. We're all condemned under the law. We're all condemned apart from Christ on our own. We're condemned. If we were there with this woman back then, I don't think any one of us would dare to throw a stone at her. Because what you're doing is saying, yeah, I'm perfect. Okay, here we go. No one did that. This woman in the story can just as easily be us. Why? Because we're all guilty of breaking God's law. Yes, it's different sin, but in God's eyes, sin is sin. One sin is enough for what? Eternal punishment, because we've sinned against a holy, eternal, perfect, just, loving God. So that's the first point of the Gospel. We see what? Condemnation. Apart from Christ, we're all condemned. We all deserve the death penalty. Then letter B, we have there's forgiveness in Jesus. As the crowd leaves, it's only Jesus and the woman. Jesus is the only one. Did you catch this? Jesus is the only one who can justly and rightfully pick up a stone and throw it and carry out the death penalty because he is without sin. But what is his response? We see grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, Jesus doesn't tolerate her sin. He doesn't even justify it or accept it. Rather, he extends mercy and grace to someone who is owed death, who deserves the punishment. And let's be honest, that's the story of the Gospel. That we're all sinners who deserve the death penalty because of our rebellious hearts against God and His law. We stand guilty. We stand unable to do anything. We're helpless. We need someone to save us. Someone to give us mercy. And this is where Jesus enters into creation. Jesus took on the death penalty for us in our place on the cross. He took on our condemnation, our, our sin, our shame, our guilt. 
the punishment that's due to us was poured out onto Him. And all who have put their faith in Jesus, let me say that, all who have put their faith in Jesus have no condemnation. There's not eternal death waiting. It's eternal life. As Jesus has been proclaiming all throughout John's Gospel. John 3.16, we, we all know this and we love this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know the next verse after that? Equally mind-blowing and amazing. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that it might be saved through Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for believers. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did what the law couldn't do. We talked about that in Hebrews. The law was we had a shadow of what was to come. It was just a, a, a blurry picture of, of what Jesus, it pointed to Jesus. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christian, believer, my brother, sister, and Lord, if you are in Christ, there's no condemnation waiting for us. There's life, eternal life. We've received grace and mercy. The opposite is also true. If you are not in Christ, if you have not professed faith and believe in Him, there's condemnation. There's, there's, due, there's, there's wrath that is due for the penalty of our sin. And that leads to the last point. Condemnation, forgiveness, and I want to say Jesus calls us to repentance. Repentance. His last words to the woman are this. Neither do I condemn you, but don't stop there. Let's keep reading. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is telling her to abandon her sinful lifestyle. In a sense, He's saying, what you are doing, how you are living, only leads to pain. It only leads to death. It only leads to suffering. However, leave it behind. Go and sin no more. Don't do that. Live differently. Pursue godliness. Again, don't get confused. Jesus' mercy here does not give this woman the license to sin or to accept her sin. Rather, He does something here that the law can't do. As Nick pointed out, extend mercy and forgive. This command to the woman is the same for us today. When we come to Jesus, it's a call to give up to give up our sinful desires, the way we've been living before we heard of Christ and before we put our faith in Him, and to rather pursue Him. Repentance means to do a 180. To, to turn away from. Right? Turn away from what? Sinful living and turn towards Christ and pursue Him. We all know this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Let me just say this. There are a lot of Christians, I'm using air quotes, who like the first point, they like the second point of forgiveness, but they fail to acknowledge their repentance before the Lord. 
They live in this in-between realm of, okay, well, sometimes I like doing this over here, even though I, I, you know, God says I really shouldn't, I should give it up, but I, I just, you know, God, I'll give you all part of my life except this little area of sin and my own selfishness over here. But what's the call from Jesus? To come and to follow Him. To turn away from that and to pursue Him. Rather than living in the tension of what? The old and the new. The Bible says the old has passed away. That we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness before Christ into the kingdom of light. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And I want to wrap up with, with, with this thought. There's this phrase that's going around, and it's said differently, and I'm sure when I say it, you're going to understand what it might sound like differently. But every time I hear it, I cringe. Every time I hear it, I'm like, I don't like that at all. This is the statement. God loves you just the way you are. Now on the surface, that sounds really nice. (laughs) God loves me just the way I am? That's amazing. I don't have to do anything. Why? Because He loves me already just the way I am. The problem with that statement is this. Jesus wouldn't have to die on the cross if God loved us just the way we are. That means we're, we're in our sin. We're guilty before God. Ah, but He loves you just the way. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change. He, you don't have to worry about you know, the Holy Spirit transforming and being born again. Dad, don't worry about that. He loves you just the way you are. It makes the cross meaningless. It makes the Gospel useless. Well, what? Then Okay, great. I'll just keep doing what I was doing. There's no need to change. There's no need for the Holy Spirit to, to sanctify me, to make me more like Jesus. And we see in this story, Jesus contradicts that statement. Jesus loved this woman enough who was caught in adultery, caught red-handed, guilty. Not open chuck case. There's no gray area. But He loved her so much he gives her grace, yet He calls her out of her sin. He acknowledges that what she has been doing is not right before the Lord. It's sin. And he, His command, go and from now on sin no more. Abandon that lifestyle. Leave it behind. What I have is better. What I have is life. Follow me. The better quote would be this. God loves us because of who He is. God loves us because of who He is. He is. God is love. We read it in the Bible. It's only because of His love, His grace, and His mercy that He's given us the gift of salvation. That's Ephesians chapter 2. If you think in any way you can do enough good deeds, do enough good works, that your, your cosmic scale of good to bad needs to be more good and, and that will impress and please God, that goes against the words of God's Word goes against the gospel the gospel says there's nothing we can do we all stand condemned and those who put their faith in christ have forgiveness and they repent and they turn away and it's only because of god's love for us salvation is a free gift from god because of his rich love and mercy towards us and i want to end with this quote it's from rc Sproul. this is what he said in his commentary Each one of us comes to God like this woman, guilty, ashamed, naked, exposed. But Christ clothes us with the cloak of His righteousness, covering our nakedness, covering our shame. And He says to us, neither do I condemn you. 
And in this story, and what we read and what we see is the beauty of the Gospel proclaimed. The beauty of the Gospel shown and made visible by Jesus' interaction with this woman who's caught in adultery. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray and say thank You. We thank You so much for Your grace, for Your love, for Your mercy. We know from the Word, from Your Word, that we're all sinners. Each one of us here, if we prayed and asked to You to give us what we deserve, it would be death. It would be punishment because we are guilty of sinning before You are holy, sinless, perfect God who is eternal. But God, I pray and we, we praise You and we thank You that we're not kept in that state of helplessness. That from Your Word we see that Jesus, that You came, God eternal, took on flesh, entered into His creation, dwelt among His creation, died for us, and three days later rose again. We see from Your Word that Jesus is the only One who gives us life. Jesus is the only One who can forgive our sin. Jesus is the only One that justifies us, that makes us right before the Lord, that we don't have to enter into His presence with fear and trembling and, and, and knowing that we're guilty and knowing that there's wrath to face, but rather we come in praising the name of Jesus. We come in knowing that we spend eternity with You, our God. We thank You again for Your grace and Your mercies. Lord, just as I've been studying this and looking at my own life, none of us deserve it. Yet the beauty of the Gospel is You came and You pursued and You made a way anyway. And what that shows us is Your character, Your love, Your mercy, Your grace. I pray, Lord, there's anybody here this morning who does not know You as Lord and Savior, Jesus, who has not professed faith in You. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that they can be drawn to You, that they can cry out and confess their sins and put their hope and their faith in You, that You will draw them to Yourself. I pray if there's any Christian here this morning who struggles, Lord, with assurance of faith, who struggles with, 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 does God really love me? I pray that you remind them of what we just read and the love of Jesus that's shown to this woman who is guilty, who does deserve, and she gets mercy instead. I pray, Lord, you give us the strength and the boldness to carry out godly living, that we can truly repent from our sinful desires that it is a process called sanctification, that the Holy Spirit does make us more and more like You, Jesus, more and more holy. But sometimes there are bad days and good days. But I pray, Lord, that even in our sin, we run to the cross. We run to it and we remember why You died for us. That even when we're in our sin, we don't run away from You. We know that when we come before You, if we confess our sins to You, You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to make us righteous. So Lord, we, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that You did all the work. 
Because we can't. We can't. Even if we tried, we'd just mess it up. We'd weaken it. We can't do it. But Jesus, you did it all. So Jesus, we praise you as our Lord and Savior. We thank you for your love and your compassion towards us. I pray that you make us more and more, by the Holy Spirit's power, conform to your image. That we can leave here being transformed, empowered by your love and your mercy, to extend that to others, to give them the gospel, the good news. We pray this all in your name. Amen.